Hi, it's Katie Kiley. I am the afternoon drive person on 97.1 The River, Atlanta's classic hits. And I'm here with my buddy, Melissa Ruggieri, music critic for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who also does the Music Scene blog on AJC.com. We are two girls talking. This is episode 14, and it's part two, talking about Alex Cooley, the great Atlanta music promoter, mostly rock and roll. And we lost him three years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe. But he was born in December, passed away in December, and we thought that around the holidays would be the perfect time to salute Alex Cooley. So music midtown. Yeah. You know, we talked last week about Alex's start with the Atlanta Pop Festival and then all the the clubs he had in town and what he did for so many careers of artists like, you know, Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen and the police and, you know, gave them some of their first places to play. And then he and Peter Conlin, his longtime business partner, who they met in 1981, became friends, became, you know, Peter became a promoter as well. They had their own promotion company called Concerts Slash Southern. We just called it Concert Southern. It's Concert Southern Promotions. Yeah, yeah. which I, you know, looking back at that, I think that's really kind of funny that that's what you would name your promotion company. But Peter is now the president of Live Nation Atlanta because, you know, over the years, obviously, their, their little company got swallowed up by the big guys as often happens. But in 1994, when Peter and Alex were still working together, they started Music Midtown, which became one of the preeminent festivals in the country. I mean, when you th- when you think back to, you know, now there are so many festivals. Yep. It's a, it's just this deluge shaky of festivals. Shaky knee, shaky boots, shaky butt. And around the country. I mean, yeah. I, I mean with Bonnaroo yep. and with Coachella, and then there's, you know, the Governor's Ball in New York. I mean, there's dozens of them. And then plus all the EDM festivals, and everything's got a specialty. But back in 1994, there was no Bonnaroo. That's <laughs> right. I mean, it really was sort of an unprecedented idea, especially to do something like a non-camping festival in the middle of a city that really wasn't being done so much. And they just decided that they wanted to try it. And I, I think uh, Peter talks about uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band were one of the one of the headliners. And he's told me some great stories about James Brown being, you know, during the early days of the festival, James Brown played it. And even though his hotel was about three blocks away <laughs> from the site, James Brown insisted on having a limousine come pick him up at the hotel to drive him to the site, <laughs> literally three blocks did. away. The limousine <laughs> arrives. James looks out the window and says, nope, not big enough. <laughs> and they had to send another limousine that was longer. Because back in those days, as, as Peter has told me, you know, and of course we remember this too, limos were the big thing. Nobody rides in a limo anymore. Now they're all like black SUVs. <laughs> That's right. That's sort of the vehicle of choice, I think, for stars. But I mean, there's just a million stories from what Music Midtown was able to accomplish in all of its years. And and then it went away for about five years and came back in 2010, back down to, to Midtown Atlanta. It's now in Piedmont Park, where it's been since. And they started off pretty small back in, in I'm sorry, it's 2011 was when they came back with Coldplay. They just did a one-night thing. And then the next year they said, you know what, let's, you know, Peter said, let's, let's, Live Nation, of course, was now doing the promotion for it. So let's, you know, go back to doing it as a two-day festival. And and now, you know, they, they get all the big headliners. And, um, but, you know, looking back on what Music Midtown meant <laughs> and what it meant for so many artists. I mean, you probably remember this better than I do. I, I remember when I lived in Richmond, I'd always hear about it. And I always wanted to come to Atlanta to attend it because it just sounded so amazing that you would have these, you know, two, three days of concerts. And there were what, like 15 stages, I think, that, that oh, was typically? Oh, at the peak, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and it would have everybody from Casey and the Sunshine Band to Tony Bennett to Bob Dylan to, you know, I mean, just this, this such an eclectic array of artists that you you weren't going to get that anywhere. I mean, no matter what your musical tastes were, you were going to find something to listen to. And 
I'm not a big festival fan. I never was. Even when I was, you know, 21 covering Lollapalooza, <laughs> I was like, this is not my jam. <laughs> you know, I like to go to one show where there's air conditioning. But with Music Midtown, you, you know, you, you can't discount what you might pick up from it. And, you know, when we talked to Peter, Peter came in to talk to us a few months ago about Alex and, you know, some other things. And, you know, he talks a lot, you know, about what they wanted to accomplish with Music Midtown. And this is Peter Conlon talking about how it all got started. That was in 94, and Alex, who had told me he never wanted to do another festival in his life, (laughs) came into my office and said, I want to do a festival. (laughs) And I said, okay, sure. Next year, he said, no, I want to do it this year. And I said, well, Alex, it's a lot of planning. We don't have the money in place, and I'm doing it, and and here's where it is. And So I started raising money through sponsorships or whatever, and we were looking for a site, and we came on the site of where the Federal Reserve Bank is now, which was basically the foundations of destroyed buildings right. that had been leveled. In Midtown Atlanta. That, that were yeah. just sitting there. We uh, worked with the Midtown Alliance, and um, we put together Music Midtown. I think we had two stages that year. We were booking at the last minute, so we were anybody who could get. I think we got, like, Casey and the Sunshine Band and just a pretty eclectic thing. And it was oh, yeah. 25 bucks for the weekend. And who was the rock band? Because we were very involved. You don't remember the first one? <laughs> we'll have to look that up. So we can look that up. Why do you think that Alex was so, like, what, what gave him the bug to suddenly, I want to do a festival and it has to be now, and like, rather than, hey, let's think about this, wait a year. That's just how he was. <laughs> yeah, he, just sort he, of perpetual. Everything was always like he had this apparition or something. He just <laughs> There was something that had motivated him. I knew they were doing city stages in Alabama, mm. and he had seen that, and he had told me he wanted to do an urban festival. Mm-hmm. He did not want to do a camping festival anymore. He wanted to be in town. He thought that was the place it should be, so we were going to be in town. So that was lucky we found that site. Yeah. We were on it for three or four years, I think, before. Couldn't be on it anymore. But it did about 25,000 people, I think. It lost money. The first year. But people really liked it, and it got a lot of really good press. And mm-hmm. so the next year... We had more time, and we did it bigger. We did more stages, and it was very successful. And I think by the third or fourth year, we were doing 100,000 people a day. It was insane. For, for three days. Yeah, and you had a, quite the lineup. I remember Dylan, the year Dylan. Yeah, we, we used to we used to shut down Peachtree Street. Yeah, he was Hanging James, from a lamppost to see so I could see. I had somebody that was hoisting me up. <laughs> yeah, he was, Bob loved that. He, uh, did he, he really? In front. Oh, yeah. His agent was there that night, and the agent came up to me and said, Bob hugged me. And I said, really? He said, yes, he's so happy because he looked down the street and just swarms of people. I was in San Francisco a couple of years ago. I've got the picture of it, and I was in a record store there. There's some famous little record mm-hmm. store, and I found the Music Midtown poster with Bob Dylan on it. Right. I couldn't believe really? it. It, just, it doesn't say the year, but it has like the dates on yeah. it. Was that back in May? Did we do yeah, it in May it at first? May. We always did in May. Yeah, it says the date's in May, and then it moved to September years later. It's May 3 through 5, usually, I think, was around there. Yeah. But um, then we moved from there, and we went down to downtown, kind of where Centennial is now, all those parking lots we put together. It's crazy when you think about this, that you're thinking about putting a festival on in the middle of a major city. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're not you're doing this with concrete and some Atlanta is a very beautifully tree filled city, but still that was down there. That was before uh, the Olympics and all. So it was just a bunch of parking lots, yeah, and old buildings that worked okay. But then then that all got developed. We had to move behind the Civic Center to uh, Central Park. That site just wasn't workable for us. 
the sales went way down first year we did it. First year we did fine, but it's the second year it showed us people didn't like going there because the sales dropped dramatically from the first mm-hmm. to second year. And so it was it was hard to recover from that. And the city was really squeezing us on the deal. And we had a mayor who didn't support it. And that's why in 06 when I pulled the plug on it. For I, not too long, though. But How then, years? yeah, five years yeah. later. Five years later. The resurrection. <laughs> yeah. My nieces and nephews live all over the country, and they're like, hey, we're coming for Music Midtown. Can we stay with you? I'm like, it just makes me so proud to know. Yeah. And Piedmont Park the, is now his home. people that started it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a little under the radar compared to all these national festivals you read about, mm-hmm. which maybe is a good thing, but... We've been around since most of them, before most of them. Yes. Around before Coachella, Lollapalooza, ACL. Oh, yeah, They Long all came to that. Atlanta, actually, to see our festival and study it. And even the Bonnaroo guys, you know, we're bigger than Bonnaroo now. You don't see us a lot in the press. I don't know mm-hmm. when to talk about all this stuff, but we're still the longest and probably one of the most successful festivals in the country. Because people now know where to find, how to find things if they're music lovers. They really do. They don't need the press telling them. They'll, they'll hey. find it somewhere. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. We, You're right. We, I shouldn't have said that with you here, but it's true. It's okay. No, it's okay. It is kind of true, though. They, they know how to find stuff. We cut out a niche. You know, we're, we're a pop slash rock festival. Right. And, and, that's and skewing already, younger. Yeah, I mean, we're skewing yes, younger that's because that's who goes to festivals. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot for me to use a Porter John nowadays. It's not my job. You're not going to get people over... 40 or 50 to go with these things. Shoot, and, over 35 sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, it's, it's young, but that's the market. I did look it up, by the way. 1994 at Music Midtown, some of the artists were Eddie Money, Counting Crows, Buddy Guy, Al Green, and just a couple more. That was the first year. The next year, Bush, Government Mule, Little Feet, and then it jumped hugely. Tons of stages. 1996, the Black Crows were there. Buddy Guy, Cracker, Joe Satriani, John Mayall, and the Blues Breakers. Then the Sunday night, May 5th, 1996, Bob Dylan, Buddy Guy, Cake, Fishbone, Joan Baez, That Cool in the Gang, Morris Day, and more. So it just kind of exploded in 96 and then went on from there, still going on. So that's a lot about Alex Cooley, the businessman. But let's talk about Alex Cooley, the man, what made him so special. You knew Alex better than I did, but whenever, you know, the handful of times I was around him, he was always just a very sweet man. Obviously, in business, sometimes that could be a little bit different. But as as Peter will tell you, it kind of took a lot to rile him up. <laughs> Here's more with us with Peter Conlon, good friend and business partner of Alex Cooley. There's been some books that I've read where Alex has mentioned, and the respect for him was immense with other promoters and all parts of the country. When you talk about Alex Cooley, people were just like, not a better guy. But I also heard that there was a side to him that was a, a little, <laughs> you know. I know where you're going. Yeah. <laughs> he, no, he, he had a tremendous respect because he was, first of all, a very decent, nice guy. He always yes. kept his word. He respected people. You know, he was raised by, you know, he's very close to his mother and he was always raised to respect people. And he was very respectful to everybody. He didn't like it when he saw somebody disrespecting someone else. And he loved music and he had a really good ear. He would hear things before other people. I remember when he wanted to do Stomp, he came off and said, I'm, I just gave this band, this group Stomp four nights in the Roxy. And I'm like, I never heard of them. <laughs> and, you know, of course they sold out immediately. And, you know, he always watched the bottom line, you know, and. He was very close to Skinner guys. They really liked him. They uh, trusted him, I take it. And, and they all did. Alan, they all liked Alex. They were, you know, he was uh, really pushed them early on and, you know, was there for them. It really uh, affected him when they when the plane went down. And, and uh, that was just so tragic. But he uh, he and I, and, and later on, and I guess in the 
80s for a while, we were co-managers of Skinner with Charlie Brusco with him for a few years. And then I realized why Alex said he never wanted to be a manager. <laughs> they would Not come, the personality for it? Well, they'd call over at one in the morning, the bus would be pulled on the side of the road, and two of the band members would be having a fist fight. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, seriously. Right. The that stories band, are yeah, amazing. They, they used to, Yeah, they used to fight all the time. Mm. Yeah. As he put it, he said, what did he say about Ronnie's, um, how he disciplined? It was like the army corporal punishment. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That he was saying that Ronnie, and, and then when you see this new, there's a new documentary out yeah, about Leonard Skinner. That, yeah. And it's like, it sounds mm-hmm. like he just hit him all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like he just yeah. turned around and bust one of them, you know. Yeah, they were uh, pretty wild bunch of <laughs> Yeah, and they just, but when you hear them talk and when you meet them in person, they're just, lo- there's something yeah. about Southern yeah. men that well, are just Well, and also it's probably special. an interband relationship, too, yeah. is different than the <laughs> brothers. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> right. now it's just really Gary, you know. I, I know, know. I, mean, I know. And I knew, I mean, Amy used to go on the road with him and Leon and, and mm-hmm. Artemis and Billy. Billy they were Powell. very oh, nice, Billy very Powell. nice guys, yeah. really nice and you could see them when they see Alex, how deferential they were. They were always like mm-hmm. bowing and talking to him, and they just really liked Alex because mm-hmm. he was such a legend. And, Did he have a temper at all? Yes. Tell me <laughs> a few temper stories that wouldn't embarrass him. Not much. It took a lot to get him. I remember once at Chastain when he slammed the door in Jackson Brown's face and would let him back in. <laughs> what did he do? I, something. I don't know. He said something, <laughs> and then uh, and it, it set him off. And. Uh, <laughs> I remember that. Uh, Can you imagine yeah. Alex Cooley getting angry at Jackson Brown of all people? It's not like the Billy most, Idol exactly. or somebody that would be a, <laughs> some meek guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he just laid against the door like that, and you couldn't move because you know, he was so big. So. Oh, but yeah, he. Uh, I saw him a few times. Very few. Very reasonable guy usually, and didn't like to. But if somebody pushed him far enough. And he got more mellow as he got older. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was in his younger days. But when he got older, he was—I never saw him. He was always very calm. And what was like the balance in your relationship? I, I mean, you know, you said Alex wasn't really a bu- could, the business guy. But... I could always make Alex laugh, uh-huh. even in really hard times. Or something, I could get him to laugh. It always broke the tension. Mm-hmm. I knew what to say, and you know, I would, I would get him laughing, and that would usually break the tension. But when we first started, I was more the business. Alex used to do things on cocktail napkins, and he'd settle shows on a cocktail napkin <laughs> or on a piece of paper. And, you know, he finally put together forms we had, and we actually started running budgets on shows before we made the offer. You know, Alex would just say, sure, okay, I'll pay you that. And, and then I'd start running numbers, you know. But <laughs> we actually, Hang on a second. <laughs> we actually had a sheet you had to fill out where you could put down, and then you could see what they're going to make. and. Take your expenses out and everything It made a big difference, you know. So we started running it like a business. Mm -hmm. It made him a lot more money. Yeah, that's really special. Yeah, Yeah, when he retired, he was very wealthy. So Mm -hmm. it got him from bankruptcy to being where he should have been. A partnership. A lot of people take advantage of him. When he was in his peak, people were stealing from right and left. For being a decent guy. That's what happens yeah, sometimes, yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They, were, they were just robbing him blind. Mm-hmm. So if there is one thing that you would want to let people know about him that maybe we don't know, what would it be? Gosh, um, I guess that he had such a good heart. He really liked people. He really did. He, he was as concerned about the audience as he was the artist mm-hmm. on a show. I mean, I saw him spend hours sometimes on the phone making sure that everything was going to be right for the audience, that they were getting in on time, that their chairs were right, that there were enough bathrooms. That I mean, he, he would go through pains to make sure they had a good experience. And it wasn't like somebody just wanted to put someone on sale, get the money, and, you know, 
he really wanted to make sure they had a good time. Peter Conlon, president of Live Nation Atlanta. And then he talked a little bit about Alex Cooley's final years. Live Nation ended his contract, and which I don't think they should have done, but he got angry about it, and he decided he was going to get back in the business, and I told him to go and retire. I said, you have enough money. You hit the pinnacle. And then he started doing stuff, like some little shows and Eddie's Attic, and I'm like, what are you doing? You know, I said, you went out the top of your game. And how old was he then? He was in his he was early 70s. 70s, right? Yeah. And and uh, I said, what are you doing all this for? You know, you've you've done the biggest shows there are, and you've you know been successful. And I think he was just mad that that uh, or a little angry on how it ended. But, I think you know, I don't blame him. Yeah, and I don't. Blame I didn't him. think I that was with very very respectful. I think he was treated with the most yeah. respect he deserved, and I, I I I've always felt that way, and I continue to. But um, he called me about two weeks before he died, out of the blue, and I was at home, and he wanted to talk about just stuff, and wanted me to come down to his condo at the beach that he's renting, he wanted me to see it, and I said, oh, I'm so busy, Alex, and he said, well, you know, you need to quit, you know, you need to retire and go enjoy life. I said, wait a minute, didn't I tell you that? <laughs> and he, he said, well, yeah, but you know, we're only here for a little bit of time, and you need to really go out and enjoy this world. And mm-hmm. he just bought a bus, a tour bus. I remember he telling me. And uh, he was going to go travel because he, he couldn't fly. He couldn't run airports. So he had bought this really nice bus in Nashville. They outfitted it, and they had a driver who was driving down actually to get him the night he died. But he, he was telling me, and I think he knew, I think he knew that he wasn't going to be here a lot much longer and that he was trying to tell me, don't take it for granted. I think what Peter shares there, words from Alex Cooley, is the perfect way to start the new year. Live it up. And next week, Melissa and I are going to do a recap of our favorite shows from 2018, favorite concerts, and what we're looking forward to in 2019. And we'd love to get your input on this. So email us, two girls talking 11 that's the number two, girls talking the number 11 at gmail.com, or go right onto our Facebook page and post at Two Girls Talking. Let us hear what you have to say about your favorite concerts from 2018 or what you're looking forward to big time in 2019. And we'll be back with you, two girls talking next week.